I rented Serenity at Blockbuster. That is the most dated sentence. <laughs> it wasn't even a red box. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you, but what right? Because I have a right to be. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So, this week, with the gigantic new Marvel release, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, we decided to take a look at another movie uh, set in space with kind of a similar team atmosphere. So we're taking a look at Joss Whedon's Serenity, of course, based on the Firefly television series. And to do that, I have a self-proclaimed super nerd, uh, Dwight Hurst, to talk about Serenity. So, Dwight, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Dave. I'm always glad to be here and always glad to be nerdy. Yes, absolutely. So before we jump into your nerdiness, why don't you tell us about your nerdy podcast so people can listen there? (laughs) Well, my show is The Broken Brain, which is your your weekly dose of mental health and psychotherapy. I'm uh, much, much like Dave. I work in the psychological field. I'm a psychotherapist and I have a private practice and I do a weekly mental health podcast where we talk about things like addiction or trauma we talk about uh, different things that are going on in mental health research. Uh, you know, we, we had an interesting episode this last week. At least I felt it was interesting. And my guest was also interested in what he was talking about. Um, it actually was one of my more more uh, more mind-expanding for me as well. I was talking to a psychologist who actually researches uh, ritual, the psychological dynamic of ritual, which, as I learned, has been you know, researched a lot by anthropologists, but not so much by psychologists for a lot of good reasons, which you'd have to listen to him to, to know. But that's uh, that's what we do over there on the, the broken brain. Yeah, I definitely highly recommend that show. Obviously, of course, the episodes I've been on are, are the best ones. So listen to those. I mean, you know, if you look at the uh, the classics, the ones that have entered into the podcast Criterion Collection that have yes. got that, uh, most of them are the ones you've been on. Obviously. All right. Uh, So before I talk about the psychology, and I forgot to mention the psychological theme will be choice, uh, the ability to choose. So before we do that, uh, why don't you give us a couple movie recommendations, Dwight? I could choose some recommendations. Yes, you may. Well done. Or, or, but do any of us really choose, Dave? Well, we will get into that in the psychology section. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I uh, okay. I'm gonna go with the the most on the nose first. Uh, first of all, I like Aliens. Sequel to Alien. I know that's a radical position to take. It seems to be. It seems to be. If you go onto onto Twitter lately, all of a sudden James Cameron is just the worst director ever, and Aliens is a piece of shit. But I like that movie. We've actually covered it on the show. It's a good one. Well, and and it's one that uh, I I like for the idea of a bunch of haphazard people thrown together in a sci-fi adventure. Um, there's even an evil corporation, which I think is a world government, but uh, but I don't know much about the world that Ridley comes from. But uh, one of the things about that one is that it has a very classic sci-fi approach of having a nice, straightforward adventure story that is buried in aliens, basically. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so I think that's that whatever you're doing sci-fi, one of the things that you have to work at, I think, is don't get overwhelmed with the techie, sciencey part of it and make sure that you're relying equally as heavy, if not more heavy, on the fiction part where you're doing character development motivation and those kinds of things and i find aliens does that really well yeah don't end up like neil degrasse tyson just like picking everything apart like that would never happen who cares like it's science fiction let's settle down yeah absolutely fiction for (laughs) so it should be called fiction science there yeah there you go you've started a whole new genre dwight (laughs) hashtag fiction science okay tm tm um there's a record of this when this comes out so that's my that was my my one I was I, I was racking my brain just to think of other sci-fi movies and one of the interesting things is I really like sci-fi but I think a lot of it errs on the side of that with the human development and the other aspect of this that I was thinking of is of a uh, a rapscallion like bandit kind of mentality right because you've got the mm-hmm. this gang of sort of hookers with a heart of gold in this movie here they're all criminals. <laughs> Some of them more gold than others. In, in Dwight's the version, they're all hookers. That's great. That's <laughs> <laughs> just a ship full of companions for Dwight. Interesting. That, that one of the characters is actually a prostitute. So yes. <laughs> I don't know if that works. But, you know, all of these uh, the, these kind of desperados that are going around. There space you go. And stuff. So, so I'm actually going to do my other one is another movie with a group of people who seem to have a cohesiveness that could exist outside of the movie, even though Mm -hmm. they don't have a TV series to back it up in, in my recommendation, um, not sci-fi ish. However, a little bit of science fiction touching it, but it's actually sneakers. Oh, nice. Nice choice, Uh man. I haven't seen that in a long time, but that's the, the Robert Redford, Dan Aykroyd movie. Good one. Good choice. Pointier as well. Yeah. They had a bunch of, a tiger teaming professionals, uh, physical as well as computer hacker-ish kind of things going on in there, where they're hired to test out security by breaking into things. And 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 I was just, one of the things I really love about we'll get into with Serenity. Obviously, they had a whole season of a TV show to build a rapport and a chemistry between everyone. Uh, but I like when movies can drop us in the middle of that chemistry, and they don't have to be like, let's origin story everybody, right? And then we're done, right? And Sneakers is a really good like example of a one-shot fictional world where all these people are really close and they all have their own you know, uh, infighting as well as their own talents and they all fit into this team. And they don't really feel the need to like backstory to death everything, even though there's a little of that, right? but just enough to make it interesting and then they never revisit it, which is a strength in some yeah. ways. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Awesome. Two very good recommendations there, Dwight. You passed the test. Well done. Um, So we are going to take a little break now, and then I'll talk about choice, and then we'll bring Dwight back to talk about Serenity. Hey, people. My name is Peter, and I am the host of a movie review podcast called Podstalgic. Over there, I take a nostalgic look and rediscover movies new and old. And what that means is... I may review movies I grew up watching, or other times I invite people on and we review movies I might have missed over the years. I also talk a little bit about what might be the number one hit on the radios at that time and other movies that released as well. So join me every week. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and any other podcasting apps of your choice. Okay, so it's time for the psychology section. So today we're talking about choice. So choice, of course, as you all know, I'm sure involves decision making. 
It can include like judging the merits of a bunch of options and selecting one or even more than one of them. You can make a choice between like an imaginary option, like what would I do if in this situation, or between real options. Uh, this particular article talks about, for example, a traveler could choose a route for a journey based on the preference of arriving at a given place as soon as possible. And in that case, the preferred route uh, follows the information as far as length of the possible routes. But if you wanted to stop and see different things on the way to your journey, then you might choose a very different route. Um, so not all choices are like, this is the wrong choice, this is the right choice. There's a lot of things in between. So the arrival at a choice includes complex motivators like cognition, instincts, and even feelings. Now, there are four main types of decisions or choices, and they can be expressed in different ways. The first is a command decision, which is a decision that can only be made by you as the, quote, commander-in-chief or owner of the company, the company being yourself. Delegated decisions, which can be made by anyone. Like if you, if you ask, like if you were, you know, if you were doing an add on to your house and you ask the rest of your family, you know, what, what color should we, should we paint the walls on the inside that could be delegated to other people because the, the choice could be made, but you could see it as something that's not really that consequential or not that important. Uh, the third is avoided decisions where the outcome could be so severe that if the choice isn't made, the consequences can't be recovered, can't be recovered from. So this would result in negative actions, like going all the way to death. Like if you were you were in an environment that was really, really cold and you had to choose between two different shelters, if you avoided that decision, that would be really, really bad for you. Number four is a no-brainer decision where the choice is so obvious that only one choice can reasonably be made. And the fifth is the collaborative decision. So this has to be made in consultation with and by agreement of others. And we actually see this a lot in the movie. I mean, we have characters like Mal Reynolds, who are definitely the commander in chief and the owner of this company on this on this ship on Serenity. But there is a sequence later in the film where he's going to do something that is a really difficult decision and one that is morally ambiguous, to say the least. So he basically tells everyone, like, this is what we're going to do, but you can decide whether you want to be a part of this. You can decide whether to leave or whether to stay. And actually, like a real world example of this collaborative decision making is like air traffic safety. So the the captain of the plane doesn't necessarily make the decision if a lesser crew member becomes aware of the problem. Then they kind of work together in order to make the best decision for everyone involved. Another way of looking at decisions focuses on the mechanism of thought used in the decision. It can be rational, intuitive, recognition based or a combination of these three. And most of the research available says that as a moral principle, these decisions need to be made by those most affected by the decision. But of course, there are there are circumstances where this is not possible. Like if you were making decisions about the um, the inner workings of a prison system, the people most affected by the decision would be the people in jail. But they would likely make decisions that would lead them not to remain in jail. So. Um, so there's actually so there's actually situations where you have to adhere to um, to whoever's the commander of that situation. So it's not just a simple like best amount of good for the most amount of people affected by it. So the all these things kind of come into play when talking about choices and decision making. All right. So those are the basics of choice. But when we're talking about choice in this movie, what we're really talking about is free will. 
right? So what we want to look at here psychologically is the difference between free will and determinism. All right, so what is free will? It's basically the idea that we have a choice in how we act and that we're free to choose our own behavior. So we are self-determined. For example, we can make a choice whether to commit a crime or not. So this doesn't mean that the behavior is random, but we're free from this kind of influence, this causal influence of past events. So according to free will, a person is responsible for their own actions. Now, some approaches in psychology don't buy into this. They, uh, they see the source of our actions as outside of ourselves, and it's known as environmental determinism. Uh, for example, Albert Bandura showed that children with violent parents will in turn become violent parents because they observe and then imitate. So it's not really it coming from the inside. It's coming from what they've seen. In general, behaviorists are really strong believers in determinism. Uh, the most famous of them is probably B.F. Skinner, uh, and he termed concepts like free will and motivation as illusions that disguise the real causes of human behavior. Uh, for Skinner, the causes lay in the environment, like in what he called physical and psychological reinforcers and punishment. Now, it's only because we're not aware of these environmental causes that we're tricked into believing that we have the right to choose. That's what Skinner would say. So he, he would say that the person committing the crime actually has no real choice. They're pushed in this direction by the environment and their own personal history, which kind of makes breaking the law inevitable. They don't have a choice here. Now, for those of us who are law-abiding, he would say this accumulation of reinforcement has the opposite effect. Because we've been rewarded for following rules in the past, especially in our childhood, then we do in the, in the present, and then we're going to do it in the future. So it's not a moral decision. It's just controlled by stimuli. Now, some other supporters of determinism look at it from a biological perspective. For, for them, it's not external. It's not the environment. It's internal forces that are the determining factor. So according to them, evolution governs the behavior of a species and genetic inheritance of each individual within it. For example, uh, the most famous person here is Bowlby. Uh, he states that a child has inborn needs to attach to one main attachment figure, usually a parent. So personality traits like being extroverted or being neurotic, uh, they're triggered by these neurological and hormonal processes within the body. So ultimately what this view sees us as is just we are biological machines and even what we view as consciousness is interpreted as just a level of arousal in the nervous system. So what's the problem with that? The problem with determinism is that it's pretty inconsistent with our own ideas of responsibility and self-control that form the basis for our own obligations, either morally or legally. And also we have shown in studies that we cannot predict a person's behavior with 100% accuracy because of all these variables going on. And if something was purely deterministic, we would be able to determine exactly what they're going to do. Now, humanistic psychologists uh, prescribe to the idea of free will, free will. So not all behavior is determined. So the term they use for the exercise of free will is personal agency. This refers, as, of course, to the choices we make throughout our life and their consequences. Now, according to humanistic psychologists, especially Maslow and Rogers, this personal freedom is not just possible, but completely necessary if we are to be fully functional human beings. They used a term called self-actualization as a unique human need and a form of motivation that sets us apart from all other species. 
Now, cognitive psychologists, not just humanistic ones, are also inclined to attribute a, a sense of importance to free will and to adopt a view that would be called soft determinism. So humanists are especially interested in our choice of ends, how we get to self-actualization, and the cognitive psychologists are more inclined to focus on the choice of means. So for them, it's the rational processing of information that goes into the making of the decision not the end decision that is their main interest. So what we find here um, in this article, which is from simplypsychology.org about free will and determinism, psychologists who take the view of free will suggest that determinism removes important things like freedom and dignity and devalues human behavior. And I think uh, one of our main characters, our main villain, would want the world to be determinist and our hero, Mal Reynolds, would really like this idea of free will. That's really important to him. But anyway... By creating these general laws of behavior, deterministic psychologists underestimate our own uniqueness and our freedom to choose where we're headed. I don't think we can really, this article talks about choosing your destiny. I think that flies in the face of what destiny is and, and makes us feel like we can see what's coming. And usually we can't. We can see what's coming just next, but we can't see what's coming 10 or 15 steps down the road. And I think it's important to note also that taking a pure deterministic or a pure free will approach is probably not right. It's probably not accurate when we're studying human behavior. We talked about the fact that there's all these different variables, all these different things going on. And this is why we have the idea, and this is why we have the idea from cognitive psychology about soft determinism, is that there are some things that are determined either biologically or by the environment. But there are some things at the end, we do have a choice. Like you could put someone down the road to be a criminal, but they still have a choice whether to commit these crimes in the end. And I think there is a, a certain human responsibility that we are still responsible for and we still have to have to take take the blame for if we make the wrong choices. All right, so that's it for our psychological section on choice. So I think there is a lot here in the movie that Dwight Hurst uh, from The Broken Brain and I can talk about as far as how important choice is and where free will and determinism come in. Uh, and I think a lot of these characters have some pretty different views, so that should be really interesting. All right, so we are going to take a little break and then bring back the aforementioned Dwight Hurst from The Broken Brain to talk about serenity. Hi, everyone. This is Tim Costa. I'm Hermano De Silva. And this is Walter Vinci. And together we are the First Time Watchers Podcast. Each week we choose a movie to review that none of us has seen. Watch it together. And then discuss. These movies could be new. Or old. Or on our list of shame. You can find us on iTunes by searching for the First Time Watchers Podcast. As well as on Stitcher. And we love interacting with our listeners. So if you have any suggestions, send us a tweet. An email. Or post to our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. That's right. I mean, it's all about interaction. And talk about what we love. Movies. And you don't have to worry about us going on and on about this and that and the other. And oh, no, look, no, no, let's no. talk stop, about stop, this. Stop, 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 shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. And shut I up. wonder shut who up. the guy that can God damn it, shut up. I think that's enough. Oh, my God. Go by the All right, so we're back. We're back. We're back to talk about the movie Serenity. So we always talk about our history uh, with these movies. This is a little different, of course, because of the TV series attached to it. And I know in my case, this was a TV show I heard about, unfortunately, after it was canceled. I think this is one of those that got a lot of life on DVD and became this weird word of mouth, crazy, this crazy thing. And I remember I had a bunch of friends like hound me for months, like you have to watch Serenity. It's so amazing. It's like the best 
best TV you'll see all year. You got to check it out. And I finally sat down. I, you know, borrowed the DVDs from someone. And I think I finished the series in like a day and a half. Like it's one of those very addictive. You just want the next one, the next one. But it's a very weird feeling sitting down to watch something that you know is dead. Like you at this point, there was no movie. And it was just like, hey, this is this great show that got canceled. Enjoy and then be sad like the rest of us. Like it was like this interesting shared anger the shared sadness that we just wanted to share with everyone we could like look at how good this is you should be angry like me and it absolutely worked and i and i loved it uh and then was very torn when i found out that they were going to make a movie because movies tend to be standalone and they tend to be uh extra dramatic and they kind of pack a lot into two hours as opposed to a tv show that you get that kind of build and and then it kind of killed the kind of hope of you know maybe this show will come back someone will pick it up and we can just start off because you know once they make a movie it's like some so and it's very true in this movie you are going to get to some points where like there's no there's no rewriting this there's no going back from this we are yeah. where we are but what about yeah, you what was shepherd back to life yeah exactly uh so what was your history uh with serenity and firefly and everything that goes along with it yeah you know you know what's really interesting is i heard about firefly here and there but i didn't really know what it was and it was in that dvd era where you had to actually buy a thing or talk right. to a human and borrow no something. streaming no streaming yeah. back then yep Ex- exactly um, and, and what's really funny, I find that I have the reverse relationship with this movie that a lot of people have. I actually, uh, watched the movie before I ever watched an episode of Firefly. Oh, interesting. So, okay. And so, so from my perspective, I feel like it really does stand up as a standalone piece because it, we really liked it. My wife and I were looking for something to rent at a blockbuster video, which is a very old sentence. You are so old. Like, Jesus. <laughs> I rented Serenity at Blockbuster. That is the most dated sentence. <laughs> it wasn't even a red box. Oh uh, my. <laughs> so yeah, we, we, we went into the to the local constabulatory or the local blockbuster <laughs> and we, we found this movie. We we really didn't know anything about it. We didn't even know that it connected with Firefly at first. Mm-hmm. I, I, I say that. She might have. I didn't. Um, and so, so we watched it and really got a kick out of it, really enjoyed it. And, um, it was one of those things where just like I said, I love movies that don't feel like they have to hold your hand too much about, Hey, who are these people? You'll figure it out. Right. And I, I feel like, and I feel like I can say this as someone who watched it without ever seeing Firefly. Um, it, it, I was able to, I figured it out, you know, right. and I'm not that smart. So <laughs> I feel like they did a good job of immersing you into an already established universe uh, without actually requiring you to know everything that was on the show. Um, and, and we caught on pretty quick. Oh, she's obviously got some kind of weird psychic powers. They, Oh, there's some, uh, there's something going on between those two. Okay. I get it. You know, they, they were good at, uh, taking care of the new viewer as well as satisfying the others, I think, because I went around and then watched it not until, uh, Netflix was in our lives mm. with, did we watch Firefly? And then we're like, wow. And now we watch Firefly and then cap it off with this movie about once a year. Not necessarily at a real regular interval, but it usually is around once a year. That is maybe the nerdiest thing I've ever heard. You are living up <laughs> to the description we brought up at the beginning. Well Everything done. Yes. I, tried. 
I try never to false advertise. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, I mean, that's actually uh, something I was I was thinking about was watching this movie from the perspective of not watching the TV show because it's been quite a while since I've rewatched the TV show. So, like, yes, I have this kind of history in my head, but it's not so fresh. And some things I thought were really interesting is that you know that opening sequence where we see. Uh, we see River get get saved by Simon. We see the escape, and it made me wonder: like, is this what is this what Joss Whedon wanted to do, like on the TV show? But like, there was no money for it because it was really interesting to get to get this information up front for a new viewer instead of like slowly through the first five or six episodes figure out who Simon and River are and how she escaped and how he helped. Like, here we have this big action set piece that really kind of draws the new viewer in. It's that. It's that kind of – it's almost like a horror trope at this point, like the Wes Craven thing. Like give them a kill in the very beginning and then they're hooked and you can kind of do whatever you want for the rest of the first act because we have this fun, you know, kind of daring prison escape. It, it buys, I think, the audience and the movie a little time to kind of get used to the movie. Yeah. I I really enjoy the, the way that they opened it. Uh, I like when stories can be told with a little bit of twist and surprise that is legit. I mean mm-hmm. you kind of see – twists coming when it's like oh who's the killer or whatever right you know building up to that kind of thing or or if you're watching a filmmaker who you know likes to do i mean m night Shyamalan was famous for that and then later on reviled a little bit and mm-hmm. now loved again and uh, about five or six years from now hated again probably who knows <laughs> because you know it got to be where we expected that and and those of us that liked his movies like me would go and say oh last three minutes what's gonna happen you know right right you just knew that and that was part of the deal um so i I always like when it's something that can be uh really actually legitimately interesting (laughs) and so i think they opened this was and having watched it now with the experience of watching the series the the interesting thing is that that's very right away you if you've watched the show you know what it is Mm -hmm. if you haven't watched the show it's intriguing and being able to satisfy and hook new people mm-hmm. then I mean that that's a pretty good uh, thing to be able to pull off. I mean, it made me watch it, you know, watching it now and rewatching it and thinking like, wow, somebody should give this guy like a major uh, a blockbuster. Oh, don't franchise. do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Too many mistakes already. Nope. Yeah. You bring up this idea of there's, there is a little bit of a twist in this opening sequence that it like, you know, it reads the whole time, especially for someone who knows the backstory, like, okay, this is a flashback and the movie's going to open and like, you know, we're going to see this escape and then we're going to see, you know, either either one of these two characters like open their eyes like they're remembering this. But I like that it also does a really good job of setting up the villain because like as soon as that sequence ends and we meet the villain and really find out how terrifying he is, it like it gives the movie motivation and it pushes it forward from the first five minutes of a two hour long movie. They don't really waste any time showing you who you need to be scared of and why. Yeah. And I think that uh, the operative is the name of the character, mm-hmm. although they don't really ever, I don't know if they ever really call him anything. Nope. Uh, I'll tell it, it Jafar uh, playing him masterfully yeah. oh, playing so that, good. that character. I, I had never, I hadn't really seen him before I saw this movie. That's because he was in basically nothing before this. Like this is – I mean he had been in small parts and kind of stuff like that. But like I think right after this was Kinky Boots. So these two movies are really his introduction to to like kind of my uh, mainstream audiences. And he kind of came out of nowhere, which is so perfect for this character. You don't want 
a a known property in this role because he's supposed to be no one. He's not supposed to have an identity. And and I think it's a very excellent choice, obviously, how they do this. And from the very beginning, there's that old maxim, if you're creating a world or you're writing a story, you want a villain that doesn't believe he's a villain. Mm-hmm. But here we have a villain who doesn't believe that those who sent him are villains, but right. he knows he's a villain. Yeah, he calls that, himself a monster, <laughs> I think, at one point in the movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he said, and he even says – this brave new world that I'm trying to create, uh, I'm I have no place there. Yep. Yeah. You absolutely. Know, and because, so therefore, he has no limits at all, and yep. and that's very. They do a good job of not overusing him, also, which I think is another key to the success of this this piece. Is they'll hit on something and then kind of move on. Right. You know, there's not a lot. You get this real like chosen one magical ability from River, but it's not all about her. Right. You get. And and I think going back to what you said about the starting, it would be easy to start with Mal Reynolds and the crew of the Firefly, because that's yep. what this is about. But it isn't really not just them either. It, it, it makes it a much better ensemble piece. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. There's also some other things that jump to mind when I think of Joss Whedon's direction here. And it's kind of it's impressive that there's so much positive about this movie, because before I mean, granted, he directed a lot of the TV show and this was kind of his baby uh, along with Buffy and Angel. But when you talk about major motion pictures, he had little to no history and the little to no history that was there was not good. Uh, so it's kind of like, OK, what are we going to get here? Um, but there's little character beats that, that he directs into this movie. There's a scene where I think like three or four of members of the crew, you know, go to this bar to have this meeting right before River kind of snaps and just starts, you know, randomly karate chopping people to the neck. Uh, but they're all sharing a drink before they make this deal. And what I love is all the drinks pour. And then without without anybody moving, Jane just grabs his drink and downs it as quickly as he can. And it's such a really interesting character beat that like, he doesn't want to be there. He's only there because he has to be. So it's kind of like this, like I might as well take advantage of, of what, of what I can in this moment. And it's not something that is a dialogue piece. It's not something that's even necessarily an acting piece, but that's directed right in there by Joss Whedon of like, this is who Jane is. And I love those, those efficient little moments in this movie where you figure out who a character is just based on action. And you get more of that later um, after after like the major character death in the film, you know, where you where you have, you know, his wife, who is the kind of battle hardened warrior, just kind of move forward, even though you can tell she's upset. She's like, OK, we have a job to do. Let's get it done. So I love that you have those beats for most of our major characters. Yeah. Well, you have a real character consistency, which I think is really wise. Um you know, with take the way Nathan Fillion plays Mal Reynolds, there, it's you. You always see the struggle for him in between being selfish and selfless. Mm-hmm. That's always present. And I, one of the big pet peeves, uh, anyone who's heard me on your show or my show, whenever we touch on anything with fiction or movies, knows that that's one of my biggest pet peeves is like character inconsistency. Yep. I don't mind if a character changes and experiences growth, but you have to be consistent with who they are. Right. It, it has to make up. sense. Yeah. Or as an audience, we're just like, wait, but why, why would he yeah. or she do that? That doesn't make any sense. So when we have the culminating, and I think I think it's the culminating line that describes Mal's character when he says to them that towards the end, "Well, I aim to misbehave." There mm-hmm. are those that think control people, but I'm going to misbehave and break the rules. And 
I think that's a consistent piece is that he is about breaking the rules and making his own rules. But when he can, there is this, this interest of other people, right? That, right? that if they would have just said, no, he's hardened, he's cynical, he's traumatized by war, and then he gives a shit about people later on for some right. reason. It's, right. No, that's kind of consistent. It goes both ways. Yep. I mean, I think it's obvious that that character is – the way that character is written throughout the TV show and the movie is heavily influenced by Han Solo from Star Wars. Like he is very much a Han Solo character. Someone at the beginning, you're like, oh, he doesn't give a crap about anybody. But then throughout this kind of saga, you see that he does care and then acts in a way that shows he cares but is still true to the character. That's why every time I hear about like they're making a new Han Solo origin movie, I'm just like, we already kind of have that. I'm good. Like I don't need that. I could just go watch Serenity again. I'm I'm fine. I've got Mel Reynolds. It's it's basically the same thing. Um, the other thing that struck me in this movie is, especially with the character of River, there's a lot of like moments that feel like a horror movie, like almost like a haunted house movie where you never know where she is on the ship. And people were kind of worried about not only worried about her safety, but worried about like the fact that she may snap and do something to them. And just the way the film is shot kind of where she's always in shadow, even at the end of with this very playful moment. You know, with uh, with Kaylee and Simon finally hooking up, you see her just kind of appear out of nowhere, dip down and kind of look uh, like fun, so but creepy. creepy. Yeah. Creepy watching while yep. they're hooking up. That That's one thing I've always noticed is, yeah, there's that scene. Oh, they're finally. Together. Oh, hey, uh, why are you watching? You should not be watching this. It's not OK. I know there's some social cues missing <laughs> yes. here. but Yeah, that's a good point. And and she also uh, yeah, she plays that really well, where. There's this balance also that is very important, and here's a therapy term, right, from from DBT, balancing out uh, sincerity and irreverence, mm. right? I think that's important in storytelling as well. You see a lot of times, and you know, Nathan Fillion gets a lot of those lines where yeah. where he says he'll say something like, "You might as well shoot me right now," and then she just cocks the gun and he's like, "Well, or we could we could talk some more. <laughs> Fine. You don't you don't have to do it right now." Um, he gets a lot of those lines, but I think. Uh, River, Summer Glau, has a lot of good facial expression work where her lines don't give her any any opportunity for comedy. Right. But she does this facial expression at the bar when she knows someone has a weapon and they kind of look at her like, really? And she's like, duh. She does this like really <laughs> teenagery kind of like, ugh, would you just do what I told you kind of thing uh, without ever saying it. And I think that subtlety also works for the fearful angle. And And when I watched this and I hadn't seen the show – I didn't know that she wasn't necessarily a bad guy, right? Right. I didn't yeah. have that attachment from the 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 uh, Firefly. I get them mixed up. Firefly is a show. Yeah. So but I think even like, if you have that history, you have that history of there's these moments where you don't know, not through any fault of her own, but you don't know if you can trust her. And you and I think the movie does a great job of putting you in the mindset of the crew. Like we want to help. But I also don't want to get my neck snapped because I said the wrong word. You know, <laughs> like, so what do I do the, here? Uh, the dialogue's very clever, and I think that's something Whedon and whoever he works with, yeah. it's not all I'm He's sure. always been good at that, yeah. Yeah, it's very, very clever. You, you get it, once again, not too much exposition because there's a part where uh, Jane, who really is one of my favorite performances, is Adam Baldwin as Jane throughout this. But It's too bad Adam Baldwin is like a trash fire of a person because he's really enjoyable here. It's really too bad. He's even fun to watch on Chuck, which is yep. not my favorite TV show, but yep. super fun on that. Uh, he really beat by beat plays basically plays Jane as a federal agent, but there's right. the line in here, uh, after she freaks out at the bar, like you mentioned, where he says to Mal, 
she does it again. We might have to shoot her. And, and, and Mal's response is not what you would hope if you're like, he's the pure lily white hero. He right. says, yeah, it crossed my mind. We might have to. Right. And, and so right away you get that when it kind of goes back what you're saying to this horror movie kind of montage as well is like, we don't know what's going to happen and it might be horrible. Right. So, yeah. Which yeah, then leads us right into the major, you got the major villain of the operative, but then you have the Reavers, which are a very powerful villainous presence in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The only last thing I want to bring up as far as the direction, my probably my favorite shot in in the entire movie is when Inara is first introduced. Like you see this beautiful kind of landscape and her standing there in this very perfect artful pose but in the same moment you see our villain you see the operative kind of stalking up the hill calmly so you get this sense of beauty and this sense of danger all in one shot and i was just like noticing it this time watching through like oh my god like joss whedon really framed this well the rest of the movie like it's not it's not like it's an ugly movie but it's it's designed to be a western so it's designed to be a little bit stark and a little bit rough so i love that he got to kind of explore these other planets and these other people and have these moments of beauty kind of sprinkled within uh so let's talk about the acting really quick you've already mentioned a couple people i think nathan fillion is borderline perfect in this role. It was like he was born to play it. Uh, he really has a good handle on that balance you were talking about, like feeling like this is someone I want to be around, but also in bad moments, someone I actually, I'm actually a little bit afraid of because he has done some things that are questionable. Um, but I think one of my favorite performances in this movie is Gina Torres. Um, as as though I, I just think she's phenomenal here and she kind of always has been one of those kind of underutilized actresses she's made she's had kind of an interesting tv career i mean i know she was on like hannibal uh and she was on this and i think she had a i can't remember if she was on buffy or angel but she was a villain on one of those shows too but just never really made the leap to the big screen but i think she just has this kind of power and grace just inherent in her performance and she is someone you're just constantly like your eyes are on her because in a lot of ways she's the only one who can reach mal she's like his compass that like when he goes way far off the deep end and does something terrible she's the only one who can check him because everyone else you know they didn't serve with him they're not on his level so he kind of depends on her and i think she plays that role really well She's also the least afraid of him as a mm -hmm. character, right? She's not intimidated by him when he's intimidating. She's respectful to the chain of command. Um, but yeah, also, also by the way, uh, Gina Torres has a, a wonderful performance on Suits, if anybody watches oh, Suits. Oh, that's right, yeah. Oh, Su Suits has fallen prey to what I call the the curse of USA, which is... Which uh, is no one watches it? Is that... The yeah, well... <laughs> People laugh about shows on USA, but if you look at any of them, I, I would maintain that you look at like Suits, Burn Notice, any of the other, maybe, you know, any any of the other ones that come out with a really strong first season and then become a joke. Mm -hmm. um, there's some real good writing and and uh, uh, creation that world creation, character creation that goes on at USA. They just can't maintain anything without getting super silly. Right. Uh, it, it seems like. Fingers crossed for Mr. Robot season three. So. <laughs> Anyway, but yeah, she's fantastic. Very, very strong female role in that uh, where she's the head of a law firm. And and yeah, also probably the one – I don't want to think about this except for uh, our, our friend uh, the operative. Probably those two are the ones who translate the best to other roles would be my right. experience. And I haven't seen everybody in this movie in, in everything they've ever been in. But I think that uh, – 
You look at Alan Tudyuk, he pretty much plays the same kind of comic character and yep. everything. He's and good at it, are, but it is the same yeah. character. And same even thing with Baldwin that you talked about, like oh. playing even on Chuck, like essentially playing this like gruff, tough character who like just doesn't take any crap from anybody and does his own thing, whether it's good or bad. Like that's kind of his his thing and he's good at it, but he doesn't do much else. Yeah. And I would say even Nathan Fillion is as much as that might piss people off. Maybe he hasn't found the right role since then. I was going to say he's just as good at Mal Reynolds as he is awkward and everything he's ever done since then. Yeah, right. I mean, I so just all I just, angry Castle fans tweet yes. at Pop Culture Case Study. Yes, I think uh, Nathan Fillion strikes me as an actor who's having a really good time and doesn't really care. Like he's not he's not someone's like, well, let me plot out my next role. It's I'm going to choose this really carefully. He just seems like one of those actors. I just watched a horror movie he was in uh, called Slither, and he just looks like he's having a ball and it's just, you know, enjoying himself. And like, you know, you know, it's kind of like oh. I talked about I talked about this with someone about The Rock where he's really he's actually a very good actor, but he just kind of picks up whatever's next. And he's like, yeah, let's do this. This looks like a good time. Why not? Yeah. You know, and Nathan Fillion seems like in that same vein where he doesn't really care about kind of how people think of him as an actor. As long as he's working and having a good time, like, well, yeah, that's it, fine. It, it reminds me of the my favorite Michael Caine story. Michael Caine once in an interview, I heard of people. He was actually asked by the interviewer kind of a gutsy question, which was, how come you, you have such a range in your career? You've been in these classic movies and then you've also been in some just real stinkers. And I don't think they said it that way, but it was basically like, you know, there's some movies you've been in that haven't gotten a lot of acceptance critically or whatever. And he said, oh, well, the way that I always pick my roles is uh, I have my agent or whatever. And we, we decide uh, based off of if I want to visit the place where they're filming. Yep. I mean, I think he was in a Jaws movie at one point, like one of the sequels, because he was like, well, they're filming in Hawaii or wherever it was. Exactly. And it's yeah. like, I'd like to spend, you know, three or four months on a tropical island. Fuck it, let's do it, you know, right. which I kind of respect the honesty there and yeah. not like, well, it didn't really work out the way we wanted it to, but I would you, do it again if I had the opportunity. Like, no, I just wanted to drink my ties on the beach. So I thought I would take that role. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's any other. I mean, I think all the kind of members of the crew are pretty well established and give really good performances. I think the thing that surprised me is like seeing an actress that now is like relatively big, Sarah Paulson uh, show up near the end of this movie. She was the kind of the holographic message at the end of the film. And she's been in like kind of all these shows. And I was like, what, what is going on? It's always interesting to watch these older movies and watch for the kind of uh, the smaller roles that have become like much, much bigger actors. But I think, I don't think there's really a weak link here. I think there might be some weak links to the story, how um, how Shepard Book is kind of not there and then it's just kind of killed off unceremoniously. So he gets like a pseudo death scene, but nothing else. And I think this can be the problem with this kind of uh, this. They, they do this thing with these kind of tied in universes where I know before this movie came out, there was a comic book series that they released that explained what happened in between. And like, honestly, that's great, but I shouldn't have to watch. I shouldn't have to read a comic book after the TV series before I see the movie so I can understand why people are separated like that. That should be explained. Like, I, th I think it's interesting. It's a really tough. It's a tough job to take a TV series and make it into a movie, especially when it's like a cult favorite, 
because it's kind of like, okay, how much do we explain here? How much do we tie in? Who is this movie for? Like, is this for the masses or is this like, is this movie like a favor to the fans who kind of kept this, the hope of this TV show alive? Yeah. And it's such a big pressure. It's never going to be perfect. I mm-hmm. mean, and, and you can look at that a lot with this dynamic with Star Wars now that a lot of people got really upset. A lot of older people, our age or older. Uh, older who, than who, us? Is that possible? Older than us. Even. Good God. <laughs> they, they looked at it and said it's just a beat for beat sort of retelling of A New Hope. And that was the biggest critique that it mm-hmm. is very open for. Uh, but then again, you look at like uh, my 13-year-old and his experience going to a big theater to see a brand new Star Wars movie. That was his A New Hope moment, you know, yep. or whatever. I wasn't old enough to see A New Hope in the theater. but um, Sure, sure you were. <laughs> Jedi moment. I do remember seeing that in the theater uh, and being like, cool, a new Star Wars movie. That hardly ever happens. Yep. And that, that'll go away eventually because there's – Because now that's every year there's a new one coming out. Yeah. And as much as people are snarky about it, I will probably watch all of them. Yep. Oh, guaranteed. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I will definitely be there. All right. So uh, it's hard. It's hard to meet the. Yeah, it's hard to, to to meet up to all those needs. But yeah. I do feel I feel you on the shepherd moment because it's like, oh, was that just an emotional? We needed to have someone die who we felt sad about. At right. This beat of the movie. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that's actually, I think, the perfect way to kind of segue us into the writing of the film. So I was noticing this time how in the in the introduction to this, like right before the kind of rescue, the flashback to the rescue, we have a lot of exposition. Like the the movie opens and it's like, well, the you know, this is how all this happened. This is the history of the Alliance. This is blah, 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 blah. And I felt like as as a viewer who knows all this stuff, I was like, oh, my God, like, let's move on. Like, I know. But like we talked about, this is a really difficult thing because you have to you have to do the work of 10 to 11 hours of television in two to three minutes for people like you who had never seen the TV show. So I was wondering, it's, I know it's hard to like think back and remember the first time you watched it, but did that stand out to you as like too much exposition? Was it hard to kind of jump into the movie because you had to like listen to Joss Whedon's essay on the, <laughs> on the history of the universe or did that work for you? It was a little more, a little more detailed than like when you watch the episodes and it's just like, uh, one of the characters in character explaining, here's what happened. Right. Uh, we terraformed a bunch of planets. A bunch of people fought in this war. A bunch of idiots like me. And now we're here. Blah, blah, blah. Or I'm Shepard Book. And here we, you know. So um, it was a little more in depth than that. I guess they felt they needed to set up that much and they couldn't do it as a piece of dialogue or uh, newsreels or something like that. That's right. lazy. So they just did a voiceover. Um, I, I, in fact, If I remember correctly, when I did watch that, that did take me out of it for a minute where at first I thought, oh, is this going to be a little complicated? Right. Like, should I have read a book before I came in here? (laughs) Is this movie not for me? There was a little bit of that feeling. It's kind of similar. I've heard a lot of people say that if you miss Firefly, you should watch The Expanse on Mm -hmm. sci-fi. And it's a good show. We've been watching it. I wouldn't quite say it's analogous completely, but they, they... I think if it has a flaw, which it has a few, it invested a lot into the heavy exposition style world building. Right. Well, we don't have enough water over here. And here's what the term belters means. And here's what this is and that and this and that and this for like three episodes worth of. All right. We just have something happen, mm-hmm. you know, um, so it can risk that. I think that I think it was it was quick enough that once the actionish bit started it was like okay here we are and you kind of forget about it right um 
I don't know. I don't know if there'd be a better way to do it. I, I mean, I'm, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, in this case, it's sure. really difficult to weave this in uh, yeah. and still have new viewers follow it. Like, I think you could weave it in for people would watch the TV show. But again, what's the point? We already know all this stuff. Um, right. but, but for the new viewer, it is, I mean, it's a lot of information. Um, but I think like the, the action beats right after that, I think kind of help a little bit. And I also yeah. thought like for the first time in, you know, 11 to 12 hours, whatever it was that first season, we get a real hint as to why why this group really needs to get river like we get like oh she's really smart she's she could be used as a weapon like that kind of trope but they bring up this idea of like she has you know she can read minds she has psychic powers and you left her in a room with really powerful people and we don't know what she knows and i thought for the first time oh this actually makes sense as to why they would need to go after her and either capture her or kill her because they don't know what she knows but it could be really damaging and i thought it gave a great motivation for our villain to track her down and and the real motivation there you know it's it's kind of a normal sci-fi thing is you've got the dystopian government right Mm -hmm. and and i think that whole control feature of we're going to make a world where no one can act out the way we don't want them to act out and the 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 great thing about that is it's very vague and you can project your own feelings onto that as far as what is it that i'm afraid the government's going to do to me or to others i care about or to the less powerful groups Mm -hmm. Um, so you can kind of project that but they kind of never really explain what they mean by a world without sin or whatever they just kind of mean like uh we don't want them to misbehave right you fill in the blanks which again as i think is a strength and also uh it, it, it's this balance I think I mentioned before, which is trying to give you enough to understand what's going on and feel very invested, but also denying you every answer so that you project yourself into the story a little bit. Right. Yeah. I also think uh, one of Joss Whedon's real strengths here is the way he introduces the crew. Like you have kind of this I – mean, it actually weirdly – it's a strange comparison but reminded me a little bit of the West Wing where you have this kind of walkthrough where you're like talking to people really briefly and then jumping to the next thing. Like you know, we get Mal in the very beginning. We get him making like little snarky comments and we see him you know, talk to Zoe. You see him talk to Kaylee, talk to, talk to Jane, talk to Wash and you get these little moments with each of them. Which frankly tells you just enough about them that like even if you've never seen the movie before, you kind of – you get a you get a picture of who they are. You got you know Jane who just wants to bring all the weapons he can. You've got Kaylee struggling to, to fix this ship under dire circumstances. You know, you've got Zoe being kind of a strong silent type and you've got Wash cracking jokes. I mean you got – you get little bits from each one of them and I think it's handled really, really well both for fans of the show and for people who are just being introduced to it. Yeah, there's a lot of show don't tell kind mm-hmm. of that goes on there that I think is very effective. Yeah, and I think just in terms of of the plot of this movie, I think I think they do a good job at kind of slowly kind of dropping you into this and it's not they don't set up the main plot of where they're going to go in the first 10 minutes of this movie. First 10 minutes is setting up the villain's plot and why he's after them. And then about halfway through the movie, all of a sudden we realize, oh, we're not. And and one of the complaints that people have had of movies that were based on TV shows, like, oh, this is just a long TV episode. Like you just, you just extended the plot of a single episode. And this feels big. It feels like a, a big movie and something important 
is happening. And I think in in some ways that's a positive, in some ways that's a negative. I think there were definitely moments as a fan of the show, I felt like, okay, we're rushing to the end because you don't think you're ever going to get to explain all this stuff. So we have to like figure out like why the Reavers exist and we have to figure out all the backstory about River and everything that's going on with this giant corporation government. And it felt like they were trying to cram a lot in there. I think it was still handled pretty well, but there were definitely moments where I felt like, oh, we are trying to fit in every idea you had for like the next five seasons of this TV show. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because the Reavers were like the boogeyman of the TV series, yeah. right? You only really saw once where you really saw the one guy who'd been Reavered yep. and, and had to become one of them. Um, so seeing them in mass and actually seeing them and witnessing what they're doing, obviously really good choice. You know, yeah, I, I I know what you mean. I think it was I think it was kind of smart to give away the whole like oh here here's where the Reavers came from and that's like because if you did watch the show, you know just watching it as a movie, it's like they only existed for me within the movie. Right. Um, then it made sense totally to say oh well there's these weird creature people who we think this is why they do that. And now we know why they do that. Um, but then you watch that. I think it was a good payoff for the show too. Um, the, the other strength is that I think Josh Whedon, Joss Whedon, I should say, mm-hmm. that's his actual name, <laughs> actually was balancing out something. And this is just my theory. I think he was balancing out trying to make it open ended because you didn't get the idea that the government didn't crumble. Right, right. Yeah. Was, There's still things to do. Yeah. More. Right. And, and Mal and his crew have always existed on the outskirts of space where they don't have as much power and try to stay away from the Alliance. Now they're more on their list. It, and then they make it act like it's kind of open for more storytelling at the end. Right. But because we gave away the Reavers and we showed that Summer's going to be all right and we got these two together and had some major deaths, I kind of feel, and I've always believed, that Whedon does not think he's ever going to revisit this universe. Yeah. I think this was his swan song to this world. Yeah, I totally agree. I think he knew, like, oh, my God, I actually got a chance to finish here. I better yeah. actually take advantage and not just hope that, you know, the sci-fi network or Fox will pick this back up and I can start over again, especially. And I think you even see, you know, as I was watching the movie, you could see like, you know, because it had been a while since the end of the TV show, like people had people had aged, people have gained and lost weight. Like there is a little bit of a moment where you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I guess that is Kaylee. I guess that is Jane. Like you just you all look just a little bit different. So it's a little it's a little jarring. No. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, anything but that. Yeah, but I think he did handle it well. And I think you're right. I think he knew. I, I, I don't think he ever thought he'd get this chance. So once he did, it was like, okay, let's do this. Like if we're going to, if we're going to get a two hour movie and you're going to give me $50 million, like let's make this movie and let's make it right. Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, to a certain extent, whenever they get together and talk about it, maybe some of the cast have this pipe dream, but yeah, I mean, no, Alan Tudyk doesn't. And Ron Glass probably doesn't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Although screw you, you know, guys. <laughs> flashbacks being what they are. It's you true. Know, you can always be like <laughs> plenty of opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, so let's jump into the production value from here. So this is something I found really interesting because, you know, this obviously had a much bigger budget uh, than the TV show ever had. And I think it's 
it's a really tough place to be, I think, for someone like Joss Whedon because he's got to want to really take advantage and make things as clean and as amazing looking as he can. But he's also stuck in the way that he has to make it look like it's still the same universe where he, they gave him like nine cents to make episodes, you know? So, yeah. so I think, I think it's the Star Wars problem all over again where yeah. the original movies are made in the 1970s. Exactly. And so they have DOS based screens right. on these starships and no emails and no anything. And I heard people complain about Rogue One, like, why don't they just email it through their smartphones? Yeah. And it's like, well, they, you know, they don't have them. Right. You know. They don't exist. Shut up. Uh, I think he really uses the, the budget most in the design of the ship. The ship feels like infinitely bigger and more spacious and like has more hidden places in it than the than the ship on the TV show, but not in a way where it stands out where you're like, well, this isn't even the same ship. Like it just feels like, oh, we haven't explored this before. So I liked that the ship felt more lived in and felt like it could actually house, you know, all five or six of these people where where it gets a little difficult is like it's the action sequences in this film. Like it stood out to me the first the first kind of big action sequences when they're being chased by Reavers um, after they, you know, attempt to rob this rob this bank or whatever it is. It's essentially a, a bank robbery little mini episode in the middle uh, of this movie. And there are moments where it stands out like, OK, this, these ships don't look they don't look like they're in the world. They don't look like they're interacting with the world. But I did like the fact that it really tapped into that Western theme because that was what I how I heard about the show was like, it's a Western set in space. And I felt like Joss Whedon really has a good understanding of the Western genre and those yeah. moments, that chase sequence, it really works for me, even if the special effects aren't quite up to snuff. It, it, it's interesting. I, and I feel like there's almost a hidden rule of science fiction is that if you want to make a really good one, you got to balance it with low tech a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless you're going full on, I don't know, full Star Wars-y. But, but even then, there's a little bit of that, where you're on a desert planet where it feels like things are very rudimentary and people are fighting to death over water or something like that. Right. Um, you know, you look at Planet of the Apes, classic, one of the most classic sci-fi movies of all time, and very little tech in that movie. Spaceship mm -hmm. in the beginning, and then we're using rifles and horseback riding to escape, you know, and yep. fisticuffs, I think was the word that they used, yes, fisticuffs. Definitely. You know. So... <laughs> Yeah, so there's a balance there, and and um, it was very ingenious when he was back on the the nine cent budget for each episode, uh, when they even worked that into some of the intros. Where yeah, some of the planets have the tip top technology, others not so much. Yeah, that's why we have a stagecoach robbery, <laughs> right? You know, or something like that. And so essentially, I think I think you're right. He's using this as a stagecoach moment. You know, here's the the cowboy back and forth thing with these two stagecoaches. They just happen to be. Yeah. And I, you know, it's funny. I didn't really, I, I'm not one of those that's really nitpicky that way. Some people are, but I, I didn't look and say, well, they never had vehicles that cool on the planet surface before. Why did, right. you know, how come the fighting moves in the new Star Wars are, be are better, even though it was before the other one took place, supposedly? <laughs> right. I'm not that kind of nerd. Yeah. You don't want to be that cheap. guy. That's, yeah. Um, I think the other, there's like two other things I really noticed as far as production value. One is that I love, I love that they had our villain uh, be essentially just a hand-to-hand -hand villain in this world full of guns and blasters and all this kind of stuff. And I think it, it takes, again, a little something from Star Wars where you have 
you know, essentially laser weapons throughout Star Wars, but really the scariest people are the ones with the lightsabers. And they do the same thing with our villain here is this is a villain who knows human anatomy and knows how to use a blade. And they set that up really well in that introductory sequence where he just dispatches like five people in as many seconds. So you know from the beginning, like this is someone to be feared. And I think tied in with that, all the the hand-to-hand action sequences work really well. All the sequences with River kind of just wrecking shop in, in every sequence she's in, yeah. you know, using no weapons whatsoever. I think that stuff really works. And Whedon has a good handle on that. Yeah, good, good action staging and planning. And you kind of believe even though Mal shouldn't, he's not a ninja like the operative is, he's a tough guy who was a soldier. And like, and you always have to work a little harder when you have a very small human person like, like Summer, who yeah. was beating up people twice her size. Or more. Yeah. Adam Baldwin, approximately twice the size of, of uh, Summer Glau. I called her Summer. Her name was River. <laughs> Gosh, that's confusing. Yeah, that is a little confusing. Yeah. But those scenes all really work. And you're right. It is a tough sell when you have someone who's like five foot one and 102 pounds, you know, taking out 25 people in a room. It's like, okay, how <laughs> is this going to work? But it is convincing. I believe you could beat up Adam Baldwin. Yeah, but, I mean, if I could get a cheap shot in, maybe that would be the only way. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, oh, let's surprise, surprise. He's in the other room. Oh Come no! On, <laughs> so let's talk about our favorite scenes. So, what's one of your favorite scenes from Serenity? Uh, you know, I really like the "I aim to misbehave" speech. Uh, I really like when he's when he's having that little meeting with them all. This is what they feared. She knew, and they were right to fear. There's a whole universe of folk who are going to know it, too. They're going to see it. Somebody has to speak for these people. Y'all got on this boat for different reasons, but y'all come to the same place. So now I'm asking more of you than I have before. Maybe all. As sure as I know anything, I know this. They will try again. Maybe on another world, maybe on this very ground swept clean. A year from now, ten, they'll swing back to the belief that they can make people better. And I do not hold to that. So no more running. I aim to misbehave. Um, I, I like all of their little dinner table meetings. If I look at the whole TV show or whatever, mm-hmm. these little dinner table moments where you get a real family sense of this cast. And so I, I kind of like that because that also represents a believable story arc to where it's like, Hey, we're always in it for profit. Where's the profit in this? Um, you know, there isn't one that right. we should just really leave this alone and we'd be fine. Uh, but it's the right thing to do. And I felt like, they did a good job of that. There's a culmination there of investment of the characters all being conflicted, flawed characters. But when it comes down to it being like, yeah, of course we all want to do the right thing. That, yeah. and, and you buy it, you know, mm-hmm. even with Jane. Yep. Who's like, yeah, you better do something, you know. I, I, I remember yeah, there's it, some there's some line in there about like if you if you can't do something smart, do something good. Do something good. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Kind of like I could I could see that because Jane, you get a sense of he's a selfish self-oriented uh, person most of the time, but then he does have this like kind of wish I was a good person. Right. Yeah. You know, I think for me, there's, there's two sequences that, 
that are always going to be memorable for me in this movie as favorite scenes. One is when Mal and our villain first meet. Uh, and you have like not only a really fun hand to hand action sequence, but also some really funny interplay between the two of them. Uh, like there's the whole line about the albatross. But I mean it when I say I've no intent to harm you. Speak your piece. I think you're beginning to understand how dangerous River Tam is. She is a mite unpredictable. Mood swings of a sort. It's worse than you know. It usually is. That girl will rain destruction down on you and your ship. She is an albatross, Captain. The way I remember it, albatross was a ship's good luck till some idiot killed it. Yes, I've read a poem. Try not to faint. Like, I think it's a great Mal moment and you get not only the interaction between him and the, and the villain, but between him and Inara. Um, and you really do see that these two people do care about one another. Uh, and I like the setup of that scene too, where they're talking on the, on the kind of viewfinder and, and they know it's a trap because Mal and her weren't fighting because they always kind of bicker back and forth. And I love that little character moment too. So I think, and the fact that, you know, I also love that the villain that we didn't mention He's completely calm, and I think that's the scariest thing about about him through this entire thing is even when he's doing horrendous, ugly things, he's, he's, he's very, totally – he's like, this is just the ends justify the means. I'm going to do just, it because this is what to do. And very rarely do you get – you get a little bit. He gets a little pissed off at, at one point, but you get very rarely is he flappable or does he seem to take any of this personally? Right. It seems like he only takes it personally when when the people that he is – that he is in charge of don't do their jobs like that. That annoys him, I think. Uh, but everything else, just this complete calm moment. Um, I think the other thing that I'll always remember, of course, is Wash's death. Like this is a, this is a Joss Whedon death to a T uh, right when you think everything is okay. It's not. And yeah, I was watching it and it still shocked me. Like I knew it was going to happen, but it just comes out of nowhere. And he's a character that everyone loves. Like he's not, he's not someone like if Jane dies, yes, it's sad, but you're like, oh, well, he's kind of earned it given what he's done in his life. But Wash has done nothing but be a loving husband and a good pilot and a good friend. And he mm-hmm. murders him <laughs> near the end of this movie. But I think emotionally it really works and it shows immediately in that after effect, like how much, how much they care about Wash. And you really get that in their in their actions immediately following and moving forward. Think she'll hold together? She's tore up plenty, but she'll fly true. Make sure everything's secure. Could be bumpy. Always is. And and going into the whole idea of doing what's right and sacrificing, there's a real meaningful sacrifice that was given here. Where even if it's just one person out of however many who died, yeah, you get the feeling of yeah, it hurt them as a group. Mm-hmm. It cut them and it cost them. And at one point, they're all thinking we're all going to die, you know, right? Except for Jane, right? Yes, <laughs> which, which is one of my favorite lines is when she says, "You really think any of us are getting out of this alive?" And he just says, "Well, I, I might." <laughs> Yes, yes. And I love that, you know, it'd be very easy for this to be a movie where the team bonds together by the end and they all have one particular goal and they act in the same way. But I love all the way till the end of this movie, these characters are still individuals. They work as a cohesive team, but there's never a moment where they are inconsistent or not true to themselves. And that's the mark of a well-written film, which is really hard to do with this many moving parts. 
and and also just being a legitimately fun piece too. Mm-hmm. To be like, hey, this is you're just having a good time watching this most of the time, and it's also quite well done. Yeah. All right, so let's move to the theme. So the theme is about choice, and like I think that that whole last sequence between Mal and our villain is really, I mean, it really kind of boils everything down in this movie, where Mal is a person who wants choice, even if it's to make the wrong choice and it will end his life. He wants to have that choice, and our our villain is setting things in motion for to put this world, like you mentioned free of sin and no one has an option. Everyone's going to do the right thing because that is what you have to do. Um, so I was wondering, like, as you're watching the movie with that, with that theme in mind, what that, what that kind of brought up and what you thought about that. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's something that's really a part of most good sci-fi is once again, along with that dystopian control, um, there's this feeling of like, this is all for the greater good mm-hmm. for the greater good. We're going to take away everyone's freedoms and we're going to give, and, and, and literally like not just, Everyone has to have an ID card. It's like, no, everyone has to behave how we want and have and submit to mind control um, and let us let us trim your passions. And, uh-huh. you know, that always works well in someone's head as long as they think everyone thinks the same way and everyone has the same interpretations and things. Right. So there's something universal, I think, in humanity that helps uh, us to hate that villain that wants to control everyone Right, is that that desire to make our own decisions, like you say. And even though the cost of that is some people will make horrible decisions, um, I think we'd rather be, be making the decisions. Right. Uh, you know, we, we want to even, even at times where there's a context to why we're making a certain choice that is very controlling because mm-hmm. of circumstances, we still want to believe even more than we do have choice. Possibly. Uh, we still want to believe in that choice. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing I was thinking about as I was watching this is really like, yes, this is the theme of the movie, but I think it's also the theme of the entire television show, too. The reason they're out there is because they don't want to just be under the yoke of this governmental regime. And that's why Mal and Zoe, Mal and Zoe originally fought in this war. And that's why they're on the outskirts and doing these jobs that some are legal and some aren't because they feel like if they go back like into the fold of this government, that they're not going to have any choice about what their lives are. And they instead, they want to make their own way, even if that means they're going to be hounded and chased probably until they die, until they're killed by this regime. But they would rather risk that then kind of live under all these restrictions. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. All right. Um, I think that covers it for Serenity. So the last thing we have to talk about is, uh, and actually you will be the guest on this episode, how excited or not you are about seeing Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Oh, yeah, I'm jazzed for it. I I heard, I actually read a complaint online. Someone who got a screener for it was saying, Oh, well, as long as you're happy with it just being more of the same. And I'm like, yep, I'm on board. I'm good. (laughs) It's 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 an ensemble cast of like ragtag heroes. But it's basically a relationship piece for me, which is the same as this movie. Mm -hmm. Seeing all these people and the way they interact with each other in funny, zany, adventurous ways. So you're saying I picked the perfect movie to pair with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. It's, I think, uh, yeah, in fact, you can you can edit around and make it so that I say that if you want. Yes. Um, Dave, I think you picked the perfect movie to go with Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy 2. There it is. <laughs> GOTG 2. Yep. That's what I want to hear. Yeah. I mean, I'm really excited, too. I think um, to me, 
Um, that's my favorite Marvel movie is the first Guardians of the Galaxy. I like how different it looks, different it feels, different it sounds. I remember, strangely, I saw this at Disneyland, of all places. That's the first time I saw Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one. I happened to be at Disneyland when that movie opened, and there's a little movie theater in downtown Disney, and we went and saw that. And I walked out like knowing without a doubt that this was my favorite comic book movie so far. Yeah. And it's so I, fun and it's so smart and it's so interesting and so different. And like, yeah, I'm sure there will be like you mentioned, like, oh, it's going to be very similar to the first one. But like, fuck you. It's a sequel. Of course, there's going to be similarities. I, That's fine. And as long as it's fun, best, let's do it. Yeah. The thing we like, we all liked about the first one was that it was fun. It's a cool ensemble cast. It's solid comedy too. Mm-hmm. That's another thing Marvel does well is they put comedians into these roles yep. instead of dour people. So I knew that the first one was more than just kind of just for fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I really liked it, and and I knew that it was a solid dialogue when we got to the point where they're all sitting around plotting something, and Drax, you know, Chris Pratt's character. Starwood asks Drax a question and he goes like, what? I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention. I was thinking about something else. And I thought, okay, this is fun. This is good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tongue is firmly in cheek for these movies. Like, yes, there is the kind of standard Marvel problem of it's always the end of the world. But even the trailer, they kind of make fun of that a little bit. Like, I think uh, Rocket has some line about, oh, we're going to save the universe twice. We can put that on our business card. Like, they know how ridiculous this is. And they're really having a good time with it. Like you mentioned, having all these comedic actors like Chris Pratt uh, and the, and Dave Bautista who plays Drax, I think was the big surprise for me uh, in the first one. Like it's not easy to play a role like that where like, you know, his whole thing is like, he takes everything literally like to really buy into that and go for that character. I thought was really impressive. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this and looking forward to talking to you about it this weekend. All right. So before you go, why don't you tell people uh, maybe how to reach you on Twitter, uh, not at PC Case Study. At PC Case Study, if you don't like what I had to say, uh, definitely send me all your angry tweets. Uh, follow me at the real Donald Trump. No, uh, the DMs at, are open. Go ahead. <laughs> at, at Break a Brain. It's uh, Break a Brain, as in the broken brain, my show. And so, yeah, you can reach me there on Twitter. You can also email me at DwightHurst at gmail.com if you want to say anything. Or I got one over at Dwight at CoreTempArts.com for the, the Core Temp Arts uh, network. It's my new email. So if, you, if there's anything you want to see on my show or want to talk about, you know, send it to me. Yeah, just send him an email saying we want Dave on your show. Yeah, exactly. That's it. That, that, <laughs> It won't work if you keep opening new accounts, Dave, like you've been doing. <laughs> no comment. Okay, time to go. <laughs> Alright, everybody, thank you for listening to yet another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. So, if you want to connect with the show, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can listen more and tell your friends about us. You can connect with us on Twitter, at PCCaseStudy. But if you really want to go the extra mile and help out an independent podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash study, and there you can actually donate to the show on a per-episode basis, and that would help us out a lot. Alright, so the next time you hear me, Dwight and I will be doing a new release review for Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and if that all holds true, then Britt and I will also be doing uh, Fangirl Fixation with a science fiction movie she hasn't seen called Attack the Block. So that's your homework for uh, our upcoming episode. All right, so until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. May not have even wondered.
Your I think your camera's a bit up. Oh, is it? I think. There is that you better? Are. All right. Well, I don't know if it's better. But oh, I see. that's a good point. It's probably worse. Yes. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> well, you know, you gave me an opening there, Dave. Yep. Too bad it wasn't. Yep. It's fair. I can't even be mad. I would have done the same thing, so. If you don't know where you're going.